You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. In today's episode, we're talking about a huge Supreme Court case that was all about unions and free speech rights. You might be thinking, wait, why would a religious liberty law firm be interested in a case that was all about unions? And that's a great question. It comes down to the fact that our fundamental rights, like freedom of speech and freedom of religion, are so closely connected as to be inseparable. It also has something to do with what we call coercion laundering. I know, you're intrigued. Let's get started. Okay, we're going to start in a way we normally don't, with a little pop culture reference. So, some of you listeners are probably familiar with the show Breaking Bad. Now, my dad is going to be disappointed when he hears that I never actually finished the series. But let's take the premise. Walter White. He's a high school chemistry teacher who starts cooking meth and becomes a drug kingpin. You, uh, you want to cook crystal meth? You and, uh, and me. <laughs> That's right. Obviously, you can't just put your crystal meth business out in the open, right? You've got to have a cover. Right. So Walter sets up a car wash business. You're changed. And if you'll hand this to your car wash professional, then have an A one day. Then he disguises the profits from his drug business as profits from his car wash business. This is called money laundering. The case we're talking about today is not about money laundering. But hold on to that Walter White car wash concept. It'll prove useful to us later. For now, let's start at the beginning of this case that ended up at the Supreme Court. Enter Mark Janus. I mean, I never set out to be a Supreme Court plaintiff. I never set out for this, you know, lawsuit of mine to go to the extent that it did. During the lawsuit, I was working for the state of Illinois in the Department of Healthcare and Family Services. And I was what my title was called a child support specialist. So I would work on child support cases. Mr. Janus had worked in the private sector for many years, but he wanted to use his expertise for public service. Between church and his Boy Scouts career, he was an Eagle Scout. Mr. Janus had been raised to know the importance of public service. So when he applied and got the job as child support specialist for the state of Illinois, that was his motivation. But the job came with a little surprise in the fine print. I started working for the state, and and of course, you know, there's a period of, you know, where you have to work through that first pay cycle, and then you, you know, sometime after that, you, um, you receive your first paycheck or pay stub. And that's when I saw the union dues deduction. And I'm thinking, I never signed up to be a member of the union. During the HR intake, nothing was ever said to me about a union. I didn't even know my position was covered by the union. Um, And to that extent, I, I don't know if it was because either I missed it or quite frankly, I think it was just just the way it was. So they really didn't say anything about it. Um, so I saw the union dues coming out 
asked around to my fellow coworkers, and basically the end result was, yeah, if you want to work for the state, you got to pay the union. Mr. Janus was not a union member, but the state of Illinois had a law that said, if you're employed in this position, the position Mr. Janus had, then you must pay a fee to the union, whether you're a member or not. That just seems so strange. Well, it was an arrangement that was okayed by a 1977 Supreme Court case known as a Abood, where the court said collecting union dues from non-union employees is constitutional in some circumstances, like collective bargaining. I think the idea was, hey, the union is going to be negotiating for your benefit, even if you're not a member. That assumption and his lack of choice in the matter didn't sit well with Mr. Janus, but for a little while he let it go. But as time went on and then I started seeing what the union was advocating for uh, at times under policies and politics that I did not agree with. Um, And again, I was never asked my opinions as a rank and file individual member or non-member. In fact, even I, I talked to some of my full union membership acquaintances and fellow workers. I said, did they ever ask you about this? No, never asked me about that either. So they didn't even ask the the full members their opinions on on issues, policies, candidates, whatever. The union that was taking fees from Mr. Janus, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, had some pretty obvious political leanings. As a public sector union, it could openly endorse certain political candidates, for example. And it took stands that Mr. Janus objected to, like advocating for new contracts with higher wages. As great as higher wages might sound, Mr. Janus felt strongly that the state of Illinois was in a terrible financial state and that raising all those wages and benefits for government employees would actually be a long-term detriment to the state and its citizens. But no one asked him or gave him the chance to opt out of any of the union's very public speech. You know, what we have in contract is we know the state's in bad shape, but the union was kept advocating for these higher benefits and wages. And that's the straw that broke the camel's back, and I said enough is enough. And the fact that they wanted me to go on strike if they did go on strike. What became increasingly clear to Mr. Janus was this whole situation just wasn't right. He shouldn't have to contribute to political speech he didn't agree with. And there was really no way to separate the politics from the union, as he found. When we tried to get some type of an accounting of, you know, where my money was going, they would come back with, you know, a statement that said, well, um, here, here's where the money is going. And one of the line items I thought was very interesting was called advertising. Well, what is advertising? Does that mean they have, you know, the, the union has T-shirts, lanyards, you know, uh, coffee cups, that sort of thing? Or does advertising mean the yard signs that they pay for for a candidate that they endorse to put in the yards or bumper stickers or any or public service type announcements endorsing a particular candidate? It's not like when you work for a private company that the union is doing non-political things in negotiating wages and benefits. That's Eric Baxter, vice president and senior counsel at Beckett. Because when your employer is the government, all of those discussions, all of those negotiations, even about employment, wages and benefits is political because people have political views about how the government should handle its workforce. 
No one should be forced by the government to support, even with their money, speech that they disagree with or political views that they disagree with. I could have just left my job. And, but see, to me, I've always been taught that, you know, you don't always take the easy way out. In other words, stand up for your rights and what you believe in. And I believe that I had the right to continue working and not have to pay a fee and, and not have to pay a, a, a political organization just to hold a job. Here's where Mr. Janis unknowingly cemented his name in history. All I was trying to do was say, look, this type of situation is wrong. So, you know, I started talking with a lot of my other co-workers who, you know, some of them agreed, some of them disagreed. There, I found out there was an awful lot that agreed with me more than what I thought there would be, quite frankly. There were also non-members, didn't like having to pay the fee. But like them, we really didn't know where to go and how we could do this, because this is state law. And how do you fight one of the most largest national public sector unions in the country? You know, it's a David and Goliath type of thing. So, uh, you know, I was complaining to some, some of my buddies, uh, you know, about this. And quite frankly, I think they got tired of my complaining. And one of them said, well, why don't you, I learned about this in the paper the other day. There's this law firm called Liberty Justice Center. They are a public interest law firm um, and they fight for the cause, you know, not the dollar amount. Um, why don't you go talk to them? So I made a connection with them and found out that they pretty much agreed with me. With Liberty Justice Center representing him, Mr. Janis took his case through the courts. He lost at the federal district court first, and then again at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Knowing that this was an important principle to stand up for, he suddenly found himself appealing to the highest court in the land. The next thing you know, we're sitting in the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments. So why would the Supreme Court take a case like this? The crux of the case was freedom of speech and, and freedom of association. You know, which is is tantamount to what this country was founded on, and what our forefathers fought for, um, and why that is the First Amendment. And if we don't fight for that First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of association, we're going to lose it. He brought a First Amendment claim, arguing that by being forced to pay union dues, he was being forced to promote a political message that he objected to and that this violated the First Amendment because the government gives the union power to force him to pay toward the union dues. So this was a free speech case. We at Beckett agreed with Mr. Janus, so we filed an amicus, a friend of the court brief, to call attention to a particular aspect of the case. This was a free speech issue, absolutely, but free speech and religious liberty go hand in hand. All free speech decisions strengthen the rights of religious believers, right? Because a lot of religious exercise is religious speech. And since so every time you strengthen free speech, you're strengthening the rights of religious believers as well. But more broadly, we were concerned about this idea that the government could coerce someone into joining a group or supporting particular political positions uh, or religious positions, because many, many religious groups and many religious individuals have objections to supporting particular points of view, be they religious or political. 
That's Eric Rosbach, vice president and senior counsel at Beckett, not to be confused with the Eric Baxter from earlier. So for our purposes, we'll call them Baxter and Rosbach. Rosbach explained why Beckett filed the amicus brief in Mr. Janice's case. It's a real issue for a lot of different religious groups that have that kind of objection. It's the most famous example, of course, is the Amish, right? The Amish are not going to join a union. They're not going to join the bowling league. They're not going to join uh, the local political club. They're not going to vote either. Same thing with other groups like the Hutterites or, or, or other groups, uh, many Orthodox Jewish groups will not, uh, but the members will not join these kinds of organizations. At Beckett, we were also aware of a concerning trend, and Mr. Janice's case was a perfect example of it. And that's the phrase we started this whole episode with, coercion laundering. It's important when you're filing an amicus brief at the Supreme Court, there's so many briefs that say exactly the same thing or say the same thing as the parties. That's not actually being very friendly to the court. You want to actually provide a unique point of view and an, or a unique idea because otherwise you're not contributing to the discussion and you're just giving the court more work to do and everyone else more work to do. So, But we also felt like there's this problem that we see cropping up in a number of different contexts where the government will say to a, a, you know federal government, state government, municipal government, will say to a private party to participate in a government program, to obtain a government benefit, you have to interact with or contract with or do something else with this other group that we like for whatever reason. This is really interesting when you think about it. So the government has some benefit, maybe a contract opportunity or a grant or something, to offer a private party. But in order for the private party to access that opportunity, the government says, oh, you need to go through this other non-government group. And there are plenty of examples like this, like colleges and universities seeking accreditation. All the major accrediting agencies, the big six accrediting agencies, are private entities. They're private nonprofits, but they wield government power because if you do, are not accredited by a recognized accreditor, your university will be shut will shut down or will have no access to federal funding. Your students will not be able to get federal loans, which for most universities is a death knell. There are a couple of exceptions like Hillsdale College. But other than that, if you want to participate in this entire huge financial ecosystem of student loans and student grants from the federal government, you must be accredited by one of these private organizations. Well, what happens if those private organizations start putting political or religious or other kinds of requirements onto, say, religious universities? That's a real problem. So this is where we get to that coercion laundering idea the Walter White car wash front. And if you'll hand this to your car wash professional, then have an A one day. Here's Baxter again. It's clear that the government can't coerce people to do things that violate the Constitution. So you can't be coerced by the government to speak against your will, to pay money, to support views or organizations that you disagree with. 
that's why we called it coercion laundering, because with money laundering, you're you're running it through a couple of different banks. You're taking dirty money and cleaning it up by running it through different accounts, other people. So it's not clear what the provenance of the dirty money is. It's the same thing here. It's something where it would be obvious that if the government said you must uh, support such and such political position, give this money to this government agency to do that, it would obviously everyone would be outraged by it. But then if you say, oh, we're just going to make you join this union or we're just going to make you support this union or we're just going to make you get accredited in order to get access to millions of dollars in student aid, then it's the same thing. It's just masked. And so for there to be true transparency, true accountability, you really need to the, the court and, and the court system generally needs to be vigilant against that. To be clear, this isn't a hypothetical when it comes to religious liberty. There have already been cases where this coercion laundering has occurred with religious organizations. We talked about this some in our, our brief because there was a threat to a college in New England, Gordon College. They were getting threatened with losing their accreditation, which of course would have been a death knell for their finances. And the reasoning was because of some particular religious positions they took about marriage and things like that. So Gordon College is a great example. The president of Gordon College was a supporter of President Obama and supported him during his election. At some point, President Obama wanted to revise the non-discrimination requirements for contractors who contract with the federal government. There's long been a law that says you can't discriminate on the standard basis, race, color, national origin, religion, sex, and so forth. President Obama planned to add non-discrimination requirements of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so the president of Gordon College, along with the presidents of other religious institutions and colleges who had supported President Obama, wrote a letter asking him to ensure that there would be religious exemptions. For example, a lot of institutions of higher education contract with the government to do STEM research. And in fact, a lot of the cutting-edge STEM research can only be done through contracts with the government. The government's involved in all of it, pretty much. And some of these schools have religious beliefs, for example, that prohibit sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And so they feared that this, if they contracted with the government, they might be accused of violating the non-discrimination provisions, even though they admit students who are gay and lesbian, but because they have these teachings that prohibit certain kinds of conduct. So they asked Obama to keep a religious exemption that was already in the non-discrimination order, and they just wanted to ensure that it would remain in and apply to them. And that caused a bit of a firestorm. And so a lot of organizations and individuals started protesting Gordon College. And the accreditor threatened Gordon College and said, your standards are not, do not create a healthy environment for students. Therefore, you don't meet our accreditation standards. We're going to deny you accreditation if you don't change your rules. So there was a, an accreditor directly putting pressure on an institution to change its religious beliefs, threatening to withhold federal funding, essentially, or access to federal funding. And so we would argue that that's coercion laundering in the sense that it's really the government that's doing the coercion, even though it's doing it through the accreditor, um, which has been given authority over funding. 
The term coercion laundering is really apt because circumstances like these make it very hard to prove that the government itself is trying to pressure a religious group. And in fairness, the government isn't always trying to pressure or coerce someone through a third party. But the danger is there, and it happens. At the point where the private party has taken on some trappings of government power, so to speak, at that point, it needs to start acting neutral just like the government needs to act neutrally. Okay, we descended into the underworld that is coercion laundering. But back to Mr. Janice's case, where we could say there was coercion laundering because Mr. Janice was required to pay these union dues and support this union speech in order to access a public sector job. Let's put a timeline on it. Mr. Janice's case first went to federal court in 2015. By the time it got to the Supreme Court, it was 2018. Oral arguments happened on February 26th. And this was a high-profile case because unions can be very polarizing. Lots of reporters. Um, there were protests outside on both sides, um, people that supported me, which I was very grateful for. Of course, then there was also the, the public sector union side that was, you know, very much against. Lots of media from all over the country, uh, print, you know, TV, radio, etc. And you go in and, you know, I'm sitting in the gallery just like everybody else. Your attorneys are doing the, the speaking and presenting the oral arguments, and that was Bill Messenger with the National Right to Work Foundation. But to hear your name called by the Chief Justice and then to begin the arguments um, was fascinating. The one part that really stood out to me the most was when I believe it was Justice Kennedy made the comment to one of the union attorneys and he said, well, isn't it true that if you lose this case, you're gonna lose a lot of your political clout? And the attorney answered in the affirmative. He said, yes, we will lose a lot of our political clout and bingo. Kennedy said, well, then the case is over then, because that's the point we were arguing, is that unions are inherently political. After oral arguments, all Mr. Janice could do was wait for a decision. Oral arguments were in February, end of February, and the uh, decision was the last day of the term, June 27th of 2018, the very last day of, of, of their term that year. You do not get any advance notice of when they're going to provide their decision. Um, but we just knew it was going to be that week. And uh, so we sat in the courtroom on Monday, no decision. We came back on Tuesday, no decision. And now I'm beginning to think I'm in a, you know, like a, a you know, Groundhog Day movie <laughs> because the same thing is happening day after day. And finally on, on Wednesday, the last day of the term, you know, we... We heard our decision. And? It was a victory for Mark Janus and for free speech. The court even went so far as to overrule the 1977 Abood case. Recall, that was the case that originally said it was constitutional for unions to collect dues from non-members in certain cases. That's exactly what had been happening here with Mark Janus. But the Supreme Court overruled that previous case and said, actually, it's not constitutional to do that. Here's Justice Alito reading the opinion of the court. 
Suppose that the government doesn't require you to say something, but instead requires you to pay a spokesman to speak for you. And suppose that this spokesperson, funded by your dollars, says exactly the opposite of what you believe. Is that consistent with the freedom of speech? Thomas Jefferson certainly didn't think so. He famously wrote, quote, to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. And it was just thrilling. I mean, we're, I was just so excited to, to know that that we had prevailed and that we were freeing approximately five and a half million public sector workers that now had a choice and a voice on their own fate, if you will. And, and, and that's, I thought that was just fantastic because this case is not about me. This case is not about me as an individual. I just happen to be the plaintiff. Janice was a big free speech one, and that's because, well, free speech was the main argument brought to the case. But I think there are going to be real implications, positive ones, for the area of religious liberty as well. For us particularly, I would call it religious associational rights. That is, do you have a right to join organizations, not join organizations if you have a religious objection, or what is the role of groups? Because this is all about when people come together. And I think that's one of the major misconceptions of rights under the Bill of Rights in this country, sort of the folk conception of them, is that, and unfortunately many courts, is that they're all just individual rights. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, all of these rights, and some of them exclusively so, are are group rights as well. Many of the religious freedom rights, for example, don't even make sense as individual rights. If I want to have a right to undergo a ceremony... I've got to have somebody else there with me. Or the cases involving chaplains uh, accessed for prisoners, that's all about who can two people come together, not, not about one person worshiping on their own in the cell. So, so much of this is relational, and I think people miss that sometimes. The bottom line is our fundamental rights are so closely connected as to be inseparable. One thing that's really important to remember about constitutional law is that the cases are not really restricted to their facts. They end up echoing throughout the law. If you have a free speech clause decision, it will have knock-on effects in other parts of the law that have nothing to do with the speech case because they go to the structure of the government. I mean, that's what the Constitution ultimately is, is how do we structure our government? love Mark Janice's story. Not only did he win his case, but the ending was also a beginning for him. After the case and after the decision, I had every intention of just going back to work, fulfilling my obligation of, you know, until I retired. But after the decision, I very quickly learned that with the amount of pushback that the unions were doing, to prevent people from exercising the rights that came about by the decision. And I also saw the misdirection and the misinformation. 
Mark Janis retired from the state of Illinois and joined the very organization that helped him defend his rights. And I joined Liberty Justice Center um, to, you know, advocate for worker rights, to go out and speak before groups and, and um, you know, put out information to try to get people to know that they now have this new right um, and to try to just say, look, you now have this right, it's up to you to exercise it or not. But if you don't know your rights, how can you exercise it? Thank you to Mark Janis, Eric Rosbach, and Eric Baxter for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music, Blue Dot Sessions, and Jay Tibbetts. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media.